I can turn this on and have a conversation with more than just Ray. Okay. <laughs> All right, cool. Okay. So let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks and praise for this message and for your wisdom that's contained in it. Let uh, Take me out of the way that I may in no way um, cover up or mislead or <clears throat> do anything that would um, keep the truth of your words from shining through. Amen. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, when it comes to uh, gift giving, people tend to be kind of all over the place in how they approach it. You know, I would guess, just from experience, that most people, when they, they need to buy someone a gift, <clears throat> they do so very thoughtfully. You know, they, they try to find something that the friend or the relative uh, would like. Maybe it's related to a hobby that they have, maybe an interest uh, something that they really are fond of. Um, but as you've probably experienced, not everyone is like that. Um, if they were, then there would be no need for the never buy your wife a gift with a power cord rule for new husbands. <laughs> Did anyone learn that rule um, the hard way? No? Okay, good. Everyone's dad had the talk with them, then I, I'll assume. <laughs> Son, never buy your wife a gift with them. So, some people approach gift giving without a whole lot of thought giving, given to it at all. Um, they just grab something that seems appropriate. Uh, they don't consider whether the person likes it or doesn't like it or whether it's fits their interests or their size or it's a color that they may like uh, or maybe even something that they've expressed a desire for at some time. Those are all things that we can take into consideration. Now one year <clears throat> I gave my wife a 22 caliber rifle for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it was something that she really was asking for and wanted. All right. Now, the funny part about this was that as she was unwrapping it and taking it out of the box, my brother-in-law looks over at me and goes, you sure are a brave man. <laughs> now, one of the more interesting gift-giving stories I've heard of was of a person who keeps spare gifts in their closet so they can always return the favor if someone gives them an unexpected gift and they were not planning to give the other person anything. First, it's interesting that um, they're not simply able to receive something. There's a powerful spiritual parallel there, but we're not going to go, that's maybe something for another day. <clears throat> but what's really fascinating about this is the fact that the gifts are given out of this special gift closet. You see, these gifts are not in the least bit personal. There was absolutely no thought or consideration given to the person who would receive the gift. Well, there couldn't be because they had no idea who it would be. No, these gifts are in no way special. 
Because in the giver's mind, this gift was simply an obligation to be met. Right? Because the person receiving the gift was given no consideration whatsoever when the gift lists were put together in the first place. They weren't on it. The giver was not even thinking about giving that person a gift. Well, okay, so why do I bring all this up? Well, I mention this story because it stands in sharp contrast to the gifts that we are given by our loving Father through the Holy Spirit. Now, would someone turn that TV on for me, please? So, if we're considering the gifts that are given to us by the Father, the first gift we received was this gift of eternal life through Jesus. It says in Romans, we see Paul writing to the Romans, and he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? And then we also receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this last week. And so we see that Luke writes in the 11th chapter, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit is that he truly is the gift that keeps on giving. And that sort of brings us to this main idea for today, which is the Holy Spirit has gifts to give you for your life and your mission. The Holy Spirit has gifts to give you for your life and your mission. Now, unlike our thoughtless gift giver with this closet full of impersonal random gifts, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts that are personally selected for us. First, let's look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 7, the last part of that, and it says, But each has its own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Okay, So, again, Paul's telling us that we all have been given a gift that's been especially selected for us. And then he says in Romans 12.6, we find this. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Okay, So, once again, we see this idea that not everybody gets the same gift. You get a gift that is matched to you. All right. So we've been given eternal life, we've been given the Holy Spirit to live in us, and we've been given even more gifts by the Holy Spirit to use while we're here on earth. And so we've received these spiritual gifts, so what would be important for us to know about them, having received them? And I think there's a couple of things. First of all, I think... Um, it's important to understand why God gives us the gifts of the Spirit. Now, for purposes of this message, uh, I'm really going to focus on 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, the list of gifts that's contained there. And we're going to go through those, so I'm not going to read it right now. There are other gifts in a couple of other places, um, but these are the gifts that are probably the most misunderstood of any in Scripture, and so that's where I want to focus today. 
All right. So the Apostle Paul called the gifts of the Holy Spirit charisms, all right, meaning a gift that was freely bestowed, all right? Obviously, that's the root word that we get charisma from, all right? Now, a spiritual gift, so if we follow that idea that it's a gift freely bestowed, a spiritual gift could be called a gracelet, um, a drop of grace in the vast ocean of God's grace, all right? It's a tangible expression of God's grace in a person's life in the form of a capacity to act that surpasses human power, okay? So it's supernatural. It's something that we are, it allows us to do something that we would not ordinarily be able to do on our own, okay? Now, there is a school of thought in modern Christianity that believes the gifts of the Holy Spirit were only given to the apostles and that when the last of the apostles died, that miracles stopped. Okay? If you believe this, you are called a cessationist because they believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased to exist at the end of the apostolic age or when the last of the apostles died. But if you really look at what Paul wrote, Paul in no way regarded such gifts as confined to the apostles like himself, nor does he ever even hint remotely at their eventual disappearance. Rather, he considered them to be part of the ordinary life of the church. The charisms are, are gifts not only in the sense that God gives them to people, but that their very purpose is to be used for the benefit of others. Right? So it's a gift to us that we then get to give to somebody else. They are by definition gifts that are to be given away to be used for the common good, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. They are a means by which God's grace circulates among us, among the members of the church, and then overflows into the boundaries of the world around us. And that's the very reason that no one has all the gifts that it's possible to have. Why? Well, because then we wouldn't need each other. If you think about you know, the analogy that Paul uses of, of the human body and how each part's different, and yet they all work together, and there isn't a part, really, that's unnecessary in all of that. It's the same way with spiritual gifts. They're all necessary, but we need each other um, for, uh, for them to work in a complementary fashion. We had a perfect, I was going to save this till later, but now's a good time to mention it. We had a perfect example of that this morning. All right. Darlene felt the Lord prompt her to speak in tongues or an unknown language in public. Okay, and then we're going to talk in a minute about the two kinds, two types of speaking in tongues. All right, but that's, that was a public utterance. All right, so I sat there and I waited to see if anybody was going to provide an interpretation because scripture is very clear that there, if there's an utterance of tongues in public, it's only worth anything unless somebody interprets what is said. And I believe John had the interpretation, which he then spoke out and said, this is what the Lord is saying. 
And so that's what I mean about the fact that we all need each other because it's possible that the same person giving the utterance could also have the interpretation, but that's not always the case. And so in this case, somebody else had it. And so here's the thing. The charisms are given to us as a way for us both to receive and to give away God's grace. Paul makes it very clear that the charisms are given not only to some, but to all Christians. All underlined, starred, boldface, asterisks, air quotes. All. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, which means every believer has an irreplaceable role to play in the growth of the church. Every believer has an irreplaceable role to play in the growth of the church. Everyone is given charisms that perfectly respond to that role. Correspond, I'm sorry, that perfectly correspond to that role. Again, highlighting God as the giver of perfect gifts. Specifically chosen for each person. There is no unemployment in the kingdom of God. (laughs) Or at least there shouldn't be. If everyone knew how to recognize and use the spiritual gifts that they were given. So we see that scripture therefore emphasizes that exercising our gifts is not optional. It's a sacred responsibility. 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now many Christians don't exercise charisms because they have no idea how to use them. They don't know how to grow in them, and they may not even know what they are. And this truly is a great loss to the body of Christ. Now, for some people, I think it's helpful to think of the spiritual gifts not necessarily as gifts, but as tools. Okay, we're all laborers. Paul, I think, calls us co-laborers, all right, in Christ. And what's our assignment? Well, our assignment is to build the kingdom. And so in order to do that as a laborer, what does a laborer take to a job site? A toolbox, in most cases. Okay? No self-respecting carpenter or plumber or other tradesman would show up at a job without the right tools. God has given all of us the tools that we need to do the job that was assigned to us. So we know that God gives us these gifts of the Holy Spirit as a way for us to receive and then give away God's grace so that we can serve one another and build the kingdom. Okay, So that sort of leads into the second idea, which is it's important for us to know what the gifts of the Spirit entail. Okay, so the first thing we're going to look at are um, revelation gifts. Now, these gifts, there's three of them. There's three categories of three in this list in 1 Corinthians. The first is revelation gifts. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and discernment of spirits. 
And they're called that because they depend on the Holy Spirit revealing to us what's known only to God. Now, commentators will differ on precisely what Paul means by these three different terms. But they're commonly used today in a way that's based on biblical principles as well as a reflection on what God is doing now. Okay, So it's really no different than the way the early Christians approached. Um, you know, they, they were sort of baffled at first by this whole idea of the Gentiles being brought into the faith. They were like, well, that doesn't make sense. We're Jews. We've always been, you know, we've always been this kind of closed community. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, the story, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and he's like, Shazam, Gomer, those... The Gentiles are now part of all this, right? And he goes back and he tells, you know, the other apostles and the disciples, and they're all, oh, okay, well, I guess that's what God's doing now. So, you know, they were trying to understand what God was doing in light of what the scriptures said, but also in light of what they saw God doing. It's really the same thing with spiritual gifts. We need to understand what they are, both by studying his word and by sort of looking, well, what does God seem to be doing in the world? Okay, so first of all, we'll look at word of wisdom. Now, it's important to note here that, that what Paul's talking about is not just wisdom in general, you know, the kind of Solomon-type wisdom that we think of. He uses the word word, which is logos in the Greek. So, and, and I was thinking about this this morning, and I honestly think maybe that this is misnamed or, or but would be better for us to interpret this not so much as a word of wisdom, but let's call it a nudge of wisdom. Because a lot of the times, what is truly a word of wisdom kind of comes to us more as a nudge, right? We'll get a sense that maybe we're supposed to call somebody that we haven't talked to in a while, or um, go see them, or, you know, if you're tuned in, you may get the sense that, you know, I'm supposed to go pray with that person or whatever. So maybe think of it more as a nudge of wisdom than a word of wisdom. But what he's referring to here is a specific insight from God that is applicable in a particular setting. All right. So as we understand it biblically, wisdom isn't merely theoretical and speculative. Right? It's practical. It involves knowing how to live and act rightly in a way that's pleasing to God. All right. So a word of wisdom then refers to some type of supernatural wisdom that's given in that moment that leads a person to make a right decision, to reply with a right answer, to break through an impasse of some kind, or just to know what to do in a particular situation. This particular kind of wisdom has nothing to do with IQ. And it's not gained by human experience or by learning. It's just supernaturally given by God. It's a gift. Now, if we were looking for a biblical example of this, we should look in Acts 10, and the very story that I was just uh, referring to. Peter is sitting on the roof of a house, and he's praying and he gets this vision of a sheet being let down from heaven. And on this sheet are all sorts of animals that are considered unclean to the Jews. 
and he hears God telling him to eat. These are okay to eat. And uh, so he, that happens several times, and then, then he's told that someone's going to come get him, and sure enough, some folks show up at the door and say, hey, we're from Cornelius, and he's, you're supposed to go with us. And so he, God has told him in advance, and so he says, okay, and he goes with them. So he was given this supernatural wisdom to understand this vision and what the visit meant in that he was supposed to show these men hospitality, that he was supposed to go with them, and that he was supposed to enter the house of the Gentile Cornelius, which was totally against his principles as a Jew. Right? You didn't even associate with Gentiles. And that while he was there, he was supposed to preach the gospel to them. Okay, So his obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit led to the first evangelization of the whole of Gentiles, which was a huge step in the growth of the kingdom. Um, one that's a little bit closer to home that I heard of, which I always, th this story fascinates me. And I'm trying, I don't remember if it was in Randy or Bill Johnson's book. But a woman had been at church and she was sort of praying for God to use her, you know. And so, she gets this really, really odd sense that she is supposed to go to this particular convenience store and stand on her head. <laughs> now, it's important to understand that she knew how to do this and was physically able to do it. Okay, so I don't believe God would, would tell me to do that because that just wouldn't happen. Okay, but she could do this. It was a skill she had. And she was like, oh, no. That can't, that can't be God. But she's just prayed this prayer, so it's sort of like, well, what do I have to lose? So, except maybe a little dignity. Which you've got to be willing to sacrifice if you're going to see the kingdom advance. Okay? So, she kind of drives where she thinks she's supposed to go, goes into this convenience store. There's another customer in there, so she kind of hangs around seeing if they're going to leave. Which they do. And so finally, she kind of walks towards the clerk who's standing behind the counter and goes, hey, look what I can do, and stands on her head. <laughs> now, what she didn't know was, what that, was that that particular clerk in that store had just said sort of a frivolous prayer. He prayed, God, if you're real, then send somebody in here to stand on their head. Wow. That's a word of wisdom. Okay? Next, word of knowledge. Knowledge in Scripture can refer to the knowledge of truths of the, truths of the faith, such as the fact that our old self was crucified with Christ, or it can refer to the knowledge of ordinary facts. So this gift of the word of knowledge really refers to supernatural knowledge of things that doesn't come through study, research, or experience, or any kind of human means of gathering information. It probably involves something that um, God really is desiring to do in a particular person or a particular situation, all right? Biblical example of this would be, again, with Peter 
in Acts chapter 5. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Ananias and Sapphira come to him. They have, they have sold property, and they lied about the proceeds of the property. They were supposed, you know, the idea that was going on then was that this community of, of believers was sharing everything. And so if you had property, you sold it, you brought the money, you kind of put it into the community till, and the needs of the community were met out of that. Well, they essentially said that they sold it for about half as much, and they kept the other portion. Okay. And uh, Peter called them on it, and they were struck dead right in that moment. Seems a bit harsh, but, you know, I'm not going to question what God was doing there. And then later on, there's another Ananias in Acts. This one was in Damascus. And he gets a word of knowledge that Saul, who is this persecutor of the faith that all the Jews were afraid of, or that the Jewish Christians were afraid of, that he had just been converted He'd been blinded and that he was supposed to go to him, lay hands on him, and he would be healed. Well, you know, if you know, again, if you know the story, Ananias wasn't too keen on this initially. He's kind of like, this is Saul we're talking about, right? You know, the guy who kills us? Really? I'm supposed to go there? But he again is obedient. He goes there, and Paul is healed as a result. Saul is healed. So this word of knowledge is a means by which God makes us aware of what is according to his will in a particular setting. Okay, And then finally, there's this gift called the discernment of spirits. And this is a revelation from the Holy Spirit about the source of a particular thought or word or action, whether it originates from the Holy Spirit, from some sort of demonic spirit, or just from the human spirit. Okay, It's got multiple purposes. Um, sometimes it's connected to prophecy. Um, and in that case, it may help uh, the listeners and maybe especially the prophets discern whether or not a particular message is truly from God. Okay? Um, you can also recognize when an evil spirit may be at work. Once again, we're going to look at, uh, in the book of Acts, and this is the, the time that Paul is on, I think it's Acts, I may not have that right. Maybe uh, it's in Philippians. Anyway, Paul is on a mission in Philippi, and the slave girl begins to follow him around. Okay? And um, she keeps crying out all the time, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. All right, well, what she said was doctrinally correct. Right? But she was disrupting what Paul was trying to do. You know, maybe she was distracting people. Maybe she was scaring them away. Uh, he was obviously there to try to evangelize. And this, it wasn't working because of this, this lady constantly crying this out. So what did Paul do? Well, he waited a couple of days, perhaps to make sure that his discernment was accurate. But finally, he turned and he said to the spirit, after he had figured out that it wasn't, you know, a good thing, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay, So that was that discernment of spirits. All right, so those are those three. Wisdom, knowledge, discernment of spirits. Then the next three we have are gifts of power. And the gifts of power are faith, healing, and miracles. 
And these are the ones that, that very vividly demonstrate God's power over disease, demons, death, and really every destructive force. Um, so first of all, we have the gift of faith. <clears throat> now, a lot of people question this. It's important to know that this particular gift of faith is different from saving faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? That's the kind of faith that's the foundation of the Christian life. All right, that's not a particular gift of the Spirit. That's just faith that we have. Uh, this is a particular gift, and what it amounts to is having an unshakable conviction given by God that he is going to act supernaturally in a particular situation. Okay? Um, Jesus essentially speaks of this, this gift when he says, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, if you really look at the underlying Greek in verse 22 here, what it literally says is, have faith of God. All right? So it's faith that can't be produced or stirred up by any kind of human effort. You know, we can't go, you know, strain and get more faith. It's just something that God gives us in that moment so that we so that whatever it is that he's wanting to do uh, can be accomplished. Then we have healing. <clears throat> and this is probably the one that may be most familiar to you, but it's a supernatural action to bring a, a person who is sick to physical, emotional, or spiritual health. All right? Now, Paul literally speaks of this gift in the plural. He calls it gifts of healing, uh, since there are so many different kinds of healing. Again, it's not something that we can do of our own strength. Um, <clears throat> you can go up to as many sick people as you want and put your hands on them and say, and, and, and then go, all right, be healed. And chances are that nothing will happen. But when we bring God into the picture, then we see what God can do through us. Without God, we have no power at all to heal anyone. With God... Um, and the energy that God can bring into a situation, we can see amazing things happen. And <clears throat> the reason healings are so important for evangelism is that they're not just an external proof of the gospel, they're the embodiment of the gospel. They visibly demonstrate the fact that the kingdom of God is here and that Jesus has come to free human beings from sin and all of its destructive effects as well as to restore us to the fullness of life. Um, and then, finally, we have the working of miracles. Um, a lot of miracles in Scripture, but this particular gift refers to God sort of partnering with one of, uh, one of us to work a miracle in some person's life um, through their faith and through their prayer. Okay, so it's similar in many respects to healing but it could be, you know, something that's just an amazing, you know. would think that healing of cancer would certainly constitute a healing. If someone is without a limb and it returns, that's a miracle. 
and that would be in this category. And then finally, we have the gifts of speech. Prophecy, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. And they're kind of loosely grouped together because they all involve speech in one, of one form or another, whether it's a human language or a language that's known only to God. You could also have uh, maybe a spirit-inspired hymn that was composed during worship, or an anointed teaching, or a revelation uh, could also be in this category. And so prophecy is speaking a message that's inspired by the Holy Spirit, especially for the upbuilding um, and encouragement and consolation of others. All right. Now Paul regards this gift of prophecy as exceptionally important because it has such wonderful power to build up the church. And in fact, it's the only gift that appears in every list that he gives in Scripture. All right. So a prophetic word can build up by arousing someone's faith, can deepen their understanding of something. It can stir them to worship. It can pierce our hearts with conviction of sin of one kind or another. And it's truly striking how often Paul is exhorting us as believers to desire this gift. It's distinct from teaching in that teaching usually involves a prepared and organized presentation of some kind or another, but prophecy is a spontaneous message that comes directly from the Holy Spirit. And it has um, the power to actually bring about whatever it, it proclaims, whether it's conviction or counsel or consolation or comfort. We have the gift of tongues. Now this is speech that's inspired by the Holy Spirit in a language the speaker doesn't understand. Okay, I'm pretty confident Darlene had no idea what she was saying. All right. Now in 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to speak about two different forms of this gift. One is a language for personal prayer and praise, and the other is tongues as a public message for an entire congregation. Um, tongues as a prayer language is a means by which the Holy Spirit enables a person to praise and to thank God, uninhibited by the need to sort of conceptualize what the prayer is all about. In other words, it's like a musical composition without the lyrics. It bypasses the mind and it comes directly from the heart. If you truly have this gift, you can pray in tongues and think about anything else you want to because you're not consciously aware of what's happening. And as a message for the church, it fulfills its purpose, as we said, only when it's followed by an interpretation. Then it sort of becomes a form of prophecy. Um, now, the second form is much more rare than the first. Okay? We, we don't see that happen that often. Um, now, one of the things that I found really interesting was that if you are of the cessationist mindset and you say that the gifts of the Holy Spirit ended at, after the age of the apostles, they love to point to Acts chapter 2, verses 4 to 11 as proof that tongues was actually a known language. Okay? You know, because it says that the, the, the apostles or the disciples gathered in the upper room all began to speak in languages that were unknown to them. And the people that were gathered, who it says were from all over the known area, all different um, languages and different dialects and so forth, well, they all heard 
what was being said in their own language. The problem with the argument is that Luke doesn't make clear whether the miracle here was in the speaking or in the hearing. Were the disciples speaking in languages that they hadn't learned? Or were they speaking unintelligible sounds that the listeners miraculously heard in their own language? Now, either way, God used it a miracle of communication to astonish the people and to open their hearts to the good news that uh, Peter was just about to preach. And then finally, interpretation of tongues is just the supernatural ability to understand what is said and then to proclaim it in a language that's understood by the listeners. And what's wonderful, thank you guys for cooperating today, and <laughs> even though I didn't ask them to, uh, that we had a, such a wonderful example of this uh, for the entire church. Now, the fact that this is a gift of prophecy could lead someone to, to ask, well, then what's the point of it being delivered in tongues if no one's going to understand it until someone interprets it? Why did it have to happen that way? Well, I think it's because in the case of an interpretation, it speaks more to the heart than the mind, and it really speaks of and focuses attention on the Lord's majesty and transcendence, and therefore it can have a greater impact on people than uh, just a, a word of prophecy. All right, I'm not quite finished yet, but I'm going to do something a little bit different. Could you come up and start, and actually start playing very quietly? And if my prayer ministers could come up and get in place. John gave it earlier. Now, one of uh, Vineyard founder John Wimber's most often quoted lines directly addresses the role that you have when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. John said this, everybody gets to play. And what he meant by that was, it was an acknowledgement that the day of the single anointed healer, a la John G. Lake or Catherine Kuhlman or Benny Hinn, are over. It was an acknowledgement that access to and use of the gifts of the Spirit are for everybody, not just the, you know, the anointed ones, so to speak. But allow me to suggest that if John were still alive and looking at the state of the church today, and maybe especially at the state of the vineyard, he might express that thought a little bit differently. I believe that he might say, everybody needs to play. Because I think John would wholeheartedly agree with something Billy Graham once said. And I quote, this is Billy Graham speaking. I think it is a waste of time for us Christians to look for power we do not intend to use, for might in prayer unless we pray, for strength to testify without witnessing, for power unto holiness without attempting to live a holy life, for grace to suffer unless we take up the cross, for power in service unless we serve, 
Someone has said, God gives dying grace only to the dying. Now, I think maybe we've taken John's quote a little bit too literally. And that we have chosen to play at Christianity rather than really living it. Because if we were really living it, there would not be a single person still seated in this church or any other church when the baptism of the Holy Spirit and more of the Holy Spirit was offered. If we were really living it, then people would be lined up three and four deep at each prayer minister every Sunday wanting prayer for some aspect of their life. If we were really living it, then new faces would constantly show up here on Sunday mornings because people would have had encounters with you and your spiritual gifts during the week. I'll close with one other quote, and this one is from Pope Francis. Pope Francis said this, I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it has been out on the streets rather than a church that is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. If something should rightly disturb us and trouble our consciences, consciences, it is the fact that so many of our brothers and sisters are living without the strength, light, and consolation born of friendship with Jesus Christ. To that, all I can add is amen.